Scorpio. Matthew chapter 20 tonight in our journey through the Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles and just wave and get their attention. They'll put one in your hands. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you tonight. Jesus is teaching in chapter 20, and he declares, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And so uh, he is, uh, owns a vineyard. It seems as if the parable is set at the time of harvest because of how many laborers he's going to end up uh, hiring in order to bring uh, the harvest in. I'm sure related to every farmer, whatever they farm. Uh, farmers become an expert on the weather. They have no control over it, but they're going to become an expert on it. And related to grapes, there's a lot of things at the time of harvest that can uh, create a lot of problems. Moisture is one of them. Rain causes that skin to split, and then a crop can be lost. And so here's an opportunity to bring the harvest in. Maybe he's got a storm coming in, forecast the next day or whatever, but he's looking for laborers now to begin to harvest his, his uh, field, his vineyard. And uh, so he went out early in the morning to hire. And uh, this is about six in the morning, as we'll see as, uh, as the parable unfolds. And as he meets them, and the scene is very much like um, I know more recently at, at uh, Home Depot, it used to be you'd go to Home Depot and there'd be a group of laborers that would be there. You could go and say, hey, I need a little bit of help building a fence, or I need a little bit of help moving this or moving that. And you could hire a person for a few hours or for a few days. And uh, now, of course, uh, Home Depot and others have stopped doing that for a variety of reasons, but that's the way that it used to be in the ancient world. Uh, manual laborers would locate in a certain place within the town, and then people that needed them for whatever reason would come and hire them. So there they are, they're standing, six o'clock in the morning, looking for work, eager for work. And so the owner of the vineyard, he talks with the laborers, and when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And so there's a negotiation that goes on. These are the only uh, individuals in the parable who have a contract with God. Uh, nobody else is going to have one, but they have a contract with them. And a denarius was the wage that you would pay to a blue-collar worker in that day. So we'll just say it represents $100, and they agree upon the wage, and they go out. Uh, he sends them out now to work in the vineyard. And in those days, you would work uh, typically a 12-hour 12, 12 shift. That's the shift that's spoken about in the parable. You'd work from sunup to, you know, sundown. And uh, so they head out to begin the day's work. And then the owner of the vineyard, he went out about the third hour, nine in the morning, and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And so he said to them, he said, you go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give it to you. And so they went. Now, no contract. He doesn't say, now, listen, I'm going to pay you a denarius minus three hours, you know, a quarter of the thing. Nope. He just says, uh, you go out there. If you trust me to do what's right, uh, I, I, 
I'll do it. And so they went. And again, he went out about, about the sixth hour at noon. And then he went out later at the ninth hour, uh, three in the afternoon. And he did likewise. He just continues sending people out into his field. He's got something going on and whatever he's, uh, you know, in the harvest that he's trying to bring in. And then even about the eleventh hour, five in the afternoon, he went out and he found others standing idle. And he said to them, why have you been standing uh, here idle all day? And they said, well, it's because we're lazy bums and uh, we didn't want… No, that's not the reason why. They said to him, because no one hired us. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, you will receive. And so they head out into the vineyard to work the final hour of the day. They have no contract or guarantee from him in terms of what he will pay them. So when evening had come, uh, six o'clock in the evening now, the owner of the vineyard said to the steward, call the laborers and uh, give them their wages beginning from the last to the first. Now in the ancient world, every day was payday. And uh, you would work as a laboring person. You would receive the money at the end of the day. And what that meant was food. <laughs> and you would go out and eat, and then you'd work the next day to do the same thing. And so every day was payday. They gather together now to receive their wages. And he uh, tells the steward of his uh, uh, overseeing his resources that they'll begin paying now the people that were hired at 5 o'clock in the afternoon and then work their way back from the last uh, that was hired to the first. And when those who came who were hired about the 11th hour, they each received a denarius. They each received a hundred dollars. And uh, wow. And, uh, and then we're told that when the first came, those that had been hired at six o'clock in the morning, they supposed that they would receive more than a denarius. And, and uh, as you can imagine, here they are, and they're all waiting to get paid the people that work for one hour get paid $100, and then you've been working for 12 hours. And even if you're not good at math, okay, 100 times 12, 1,200. Honey, buy the refrigerator and the dishwasher. We're going to be able to afford both of them here. This has been a great day. So they're thinking they're going to get paid proportionately uh, greater. And the, the owner of the vineyard, likewise, they received each a denarius, the same amount. And when they had received it, and, uh, you know, that could steam you a little bit, you know, <laughs> and uh, they looked at it and they complained against the landowner saying, these last men have worked only one hour, five o'clock to six o'clock, and you've made them equal in pay to those of us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. We worked all day long through the heat of the day, and we received the same wage. That doesn't, isn't fair to us. And the owner of the vineyard, and this represents the Lord, he answered uh, one of them, and he said, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me for a denarius? And of course they had. That's what they had agreed to. And he said, then take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give this last man the same as you. This isn't about justice here. This is about mercy. This is about me being gracious. I want to do this, and I did it. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Is your uh, eye evil, speaking of their jealousy, because I am good, and so the last will be first, 
and the first last, for many are called and few are chosen. In other words, when we get into heaven someday, there's going to be a lot of surprises about how people are rewarded and, and so forth. And this parable teaches us that our eternal reward for serving the Lord is not based upon how long we serve the Lord in the course of our life, but for how faithful we have been to serve the Lord with the opportunity that He has given to us. And so, all of us as Christians, we're saved, but some people are saved in their childhood. They represent those that were hired at the beginning of the day, some at three in the afternoon. They're, they're, uh, they, are high, uh, they become Christians in their youth at noon, those that are in their uh, early adulthood at three o'clock in the afternoon, those who are middle-aged, uh, five o'clock in the afternoon, those who only have an hour of life, so to speak, left. But each one of them responded to the call of the vineyard owner to work in the vineyard, and they did everything that they could to be faithful with the time that they had. And that's all that anybody can give. You know, we live in the United States of America, and certainly when I was a boy, it was hard not to hear about Jesus pretty early in life. But there are portions of the world in terms of, uh, you know, that were under the control of communism or under the control of other religions where a person might not even hear about Christ until uh, old age. And then they hear the gospel, they respond to it, and they give themselves as fully to following God, following His plan upon, uh, call upon their life. They take their place in Christian service, that is, in, in God's vineyard, the advancement of the kingdom of, of God. They do the best that they can with the season that they have. And God says, listen, I can do what I want here, and I can reward how I want. Sometimes it's just good to hear that, isn't it? That God's the boss, and he can do whatever he wants. <laughs> he gets to do it. And sometimes we get tweaked especially if we're legalistic. It's okay, 6 o'clock, and we get all bound up when he's gracious in a way that we don't think that he should be with other people. The thing that these that started early in the day serving the Lord. Because you remember the context is Peter saying, you know, well, what about us? What do we get for following you? And uh, what is that going to translate into? And Jesus spoke to, to the disciples uh, about that, the blessings. And what, what is one of the lessons here is for those of us who have been saved earlier in life and we serve the Lord a lot longer than other people, it isn't like there's no blessing there. We have the privilege of being able to serve the Lord longer than other people, learn things about Him that they won't have time to learn if they come to know the Lord late in life. And we have the privilege of, of serving Him and being conformed into the image of Christ in a way that they may not have time to have happen. So Christian service is its own reward. 
Now, Jesus was uh, going up to Jerusalem, and uh, He took the twelve disciples aside on the road, and He said to them, Jesus is in uh, the very last portion of His life before His death, His burial, and His resurrection. So He's on the road making His way to Jerusalem, and this is the fourth time in the gospel according to Matthew that He pulls the disciples aside, and He tries to prepare them for what is going to happen to him in Jerusalem when they get there. And so he says to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and discourage and to crucify and the third day he will rise again. You think about the… you notice the strength of the words. As Jesus is getting closer to Calvary, he elaborates in a greater degree to the disciples about what awaits him and what awaits them as a result. You see the word betrayed, the word condemn, the word deliver, the word mock, the word scourge, the word crucify, and uh, Jesus speaking about the intensity of the experience that is going to come uh, His way. And all of those words represent a reality concerning His life. And, and it's one thing to head into Jerusalem, like what might happen to you or I and we end up getting crucified, but we don't know ahead of time that it's going to happen. Jesus knew all of it was going to happen, and all of the fury of the devil, all of the fury of mankind, and not only the physical suffering, but also the shame, the mocking, and, and uh, the scourging and so forth that would occur there, the condemnation, the betrayal by Judas that would occur, and yet he continues on his way uh, to do that. Don't you love the Lord tonight? I mean, how, how wonderful He is. He could have turned away from it at any time. And the cross wasn't an accident. It wasn't just these kind of facts or um, historical events that just came together and then Jesus just ended up on the cross. He knew everything that was going to occur, and yet He continues to make His way to Jerusalem uh, uh, in order for all of the events of that day to happen to him, that you and I might sit here tonight uh, saved and forgiven of our sins and filled with the Holy Spirit and possessing hope and joy in this life that we've just uh, even sung about. And Jesus, he spoke about his resurrection as well, of course. Um, nowhere in the New Testament is the cross of Christ spoken of uh, without it also the resurrection as well, his victory over death. Uh, he is not on the cross today. He is risen from the dead, and he indwells us by his Holy Spirit. So in this context of things, we're told in verse 20 that the mother of Zebedee's sons, and this is the mother of uh, two of the apostles, um, James and John, and uh, they, uh, she came uh, to Jesus with her sons. She kneels down, and she asks something from him. And uh, we know from the other Gospels that she's been put up to this 
by her two sons, the sons of thunder, shall we call down fire upon this village? Well, they got a little wimpy side to them as well. Here they want to secure the two best seats in eternity, but they don't want to ask for it, so they send mom to Jesus to ask for it. And it's just an out-and-out manipulation and power grab that these guys are involved in. And you have to understand that in that culture, there was such respect for women, especially older women, especially moms, that they realized we got a better chance of having Jesus say yes to what we want by sending mom than us going ourselves. And so they send mom now, and she came, as we know from one of the other gospels, and said to Jesus, will you give me anything that I ask? And Jesus said, well, what do you have in mind? So she's even kind of being deceptive here, and she knows that this isn't exactly kosher. And so he said to her, what do you wish? And she said, oh, nothing much. I'd like to have a box of milk duds and a mint patty, one for each of my brothers, um, of my sons rather. No, she said, here's what I'd like. Grant that these two sons of mine, they're standing next to him, uh, her, may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. Again, they're trying to secure the two most significant places for human beings in the eternal kingdom. I mean, they don't want much, do they? Well, you've got to give them credit for aiming high. And Jesus answered, it's just, a, it's just an ugly, you know, bald, selfish ambition, power grab, as I've said. Jesus answered, and he said, do you know what you ask? And, uh, and now he's talking uh, to James and John. And he disregards now the mom because he knows this isn't about the mom. She's been put up to it. And so he addresses them, uh, you know, personally, up front, directly. And he said to them, are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And he's just explained it to them on the road. And be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. And the cup, of course, represents the suffering of Jesus. In just a short time, he's going to be on the night before Calvary. He's going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's going to say to the Father, Father, if there is any other way, let this cup, the cup of his suffering, pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Are you ready to enter into the suffering that I'm about to enter into? And uh, they said to him, we are able. And interestingly enough, they would head into a life of suffering. James ends up being martyred as one of the apostles and uh, in, in the book of Acts. We'll be coming to that soon when we return to the book of Acts on Sunday mornings. John would endure a lifetime of persecution. He's the only one of the twelve that did not die a violent death for his faith in Christ, though uh, history, church history tells us that they, uh, one Roman emperor tried to boil him to death in, in, uh, in hot oil and so forth, but he lived into an old age, but his life was filled with persecution. And so he said, they said, we are able, and so ultimately they did but only by the grace of God. And so he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. 
But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared for by my Father. God the Father is going to choose those two positions and what saints, whether from the Old Testament or the New Testament, are going to occupy those places. In other words, this is, those positions are not going to be filled the way they're so, these kind of positions are often filled even within professing Christianity by some kind of an act of manipulation or the expression of some kind of selfish ambition where I just climb over everybody else to get to those positions. God the Father will determine who sits in those seats. It's interesting to think about, I mean, as, as you learn the Bible and as you read the whole Bible, to stop and to think about, you know, who is going to occupy those two seats. And it may not even be a Bible character. It may be uh, an anonymous saint who has lived at some time in history and has been called by God to do something extraordinarily difficult in their age and in their day and in their town or village, and yet they did it. But the Lord is going to determine who is in those seats. I just want to be there. I just want to be in heaven. Uh, so, uh, but it's interesting. I don't know. I, just, I think about it anyway. And when the ten, the other ten apostles heard about this, this power play that, that, that the two had made, they were greatly displeased. That's a very uh, temperate way of putting it. They're pretty ticked off here. Greatly displeased with the two brothers. So now you no longer have the twelve. Now you have the ten and the two. And this is always what selfish ambition and power grabs do in the body of Christ. It always divides, it always separates, it always looks unfair, it doesn't sit right, and those that are left out when that kind of a power grab is rewarded within Christianity or some, uh, you know, religious environment that's associated with him, then everybody else realizes we've been done wrong here. What they did was wrong. And so even though they weren't successful, they're upset that these two guys tried to do it. Jesus realizes what's going on here among his disciples, and so he makes it a teachable moment. And so he called all of them to himself, and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, this is how the Gentile world operates in terms of power and authority and so forth. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. And so there is, uh, Jesus is uh, differentiating between power and authority in the passage, but he's talking about power first and how people arise to power, how they are esteemed as powerful in the world around us. And a person, if you picture a, uh, a triangle like this, a person's power in the world is directly proportional to how high they are on the triangle. Their power is directly proportional to the number of people who are under them and serving them. That's the way the world works. That's the power principle of the world. And this is what John, James and John tried to pull 
And so Jesus says, listen, that's the way the world operates, but that's not the way that my kingdom operates. It's not, doesn't, uh, you know, operate on a power principle. And so he said, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you want a shot at securing one of those two seats, let that person then become, uh, be your servant. And so greatness in the kingdom of God comes through being a servant to others. Greatest definition I've ever heard concerning being a servant is one who makes life better for others. It is a Christian who lives their life in such a way, whether they're operating in the world or whether they're operating in the body of Christ, they look at a person, they look at the circumstance that they're in, and they think to themselves, what can I do to make life better for these people or this person in that situation? That's what servanthood is. And that's how a person becomes great in the kingdom of God by serving others. And whoever desires to be first among you, you want to really give it a go to be great in, in the kingdom and great even among yourself, then let him be your slave. Now, Jesus is turning the whole power structure upside down. And so here your power is directly proportional to the number of people that you have under you serving you. But in the authority structure, authority in life comes by being at the bottom of an upside-down triangle where my authority is, is proportional, directly proportional to the number of people I am serving and their servant in this life. The interesting thing is, is that um, what, the key here in all of this is influence, and it's winning hearts. Uh, you, can, you can have power over people and never win their hearts because you simply have more power and you can boss them around and they have to obey you for whatever reason. So you get outward obedience from them, but you never win their heart. You never win their heart. And what God is after is people's hearts. What we are after on God's behalf is people's hearts. And people yield their hearts to people that they trust. They yield their hearts and they give people a position of influence in their life when they recognize that person is safe and lives to make life better for me. And so influence then is an authority in life is based upon the principle of servanthood. And this is a very, very important lesson for us as Christians in the United States of America today because we have, within most of your lifetimes, moved from a place where the body of Christ, legitimate Christians in the United States of America, where we lived in a, a nation that was dominated by Christianity, dominated by uh, a Christian majority, so to speak, at least in terms of, of influence and a Judeo-Christian ethic dominating the country and so forth. And because we were in the numbers that we used to have, we had a lot of power. We had a lot of power. We could push, we could shove, we could get our way, 
and for generations even maybe, uh, kind of getting used to just operating on the basis of a power thing. This is what we want to do, and we're going to make everybody else do that because we've got the power right now. But something has happened, hasn't it, in recent decades? We don't have the power anymore, and we're losing power by the year in this country as Christians, as it becomes post-Christian more and more, as the culture becomes more and more secular. And so now we freak out because we are losing power, and we freak out because we are only used to operating on the basis of a power basis in the way that the world operates. And we think because that power is being taken away from us, it's somehow going to adversely affect our influence. It will not. And, the re- and what we have to realize is it's actually kind of a blessing in disguise that we can't push our weight around in the way that we used to. Now we have to go back to what Jesus has said in the Word, and that is have influence in the world on the basis of servanthood, because that's the only way you win people's hearts. And so, that's the new paradigm, so to speak, for, uh, that we're confronting. And, and all it does is it causes us to move from where James and John wanted to be to what Jesus says must be true uh, of Christians in his kingdom in the world. You can have tremendous power even as Christians, we can have tremendous power in a nation and have zero authority. We are making people do this simply because we are the majority, but we do not gain their heart that way. But this is the way of true influence, and for us to realize that. It's not the end of the world, but it does mean I'm going to need to serve people that are unsaved. I'm going to need to serve the body of Christ. And greatness in the kingdom of God is achieved this way, not by these other models. And influence for the kingdom of God is achieved in this way. And you notice, as in verse 28, those first two words, just as, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus is the witness. He is the testimony to the truthfulness, the veracity of what we're talking about right now. Did Jesus win your heart because he held a gun to your head and said, I am in power and you will follow me whether you like it or not? No, he'd win our outward obedience, but he'd never win our will. He'd never win our heart. What did he do? He came to the cross when he didn't need to, and he died on that cross for our sins, and he endured all of the punishment of that cross and the scourging that preceded it and so forth, and he became a servant in order to provide us with salvation. And then one day we looked at him and saw what he did for us. And then we realized this is somebody who is safe to entrust my heart and my will to. And so we did. Jesus is proof in each one of our lives 
of the power of this authority that is gained by servanthood because we follow him on the basis of the fact that he came into the world not to be served, but to, ser- uh, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So important for us. It's, I'm telling you, is between now and when the Lord tarries, it, we are going to, you know, you always hear this thing where you have to earn a right to speak to people, and that is the truth. People do not have to listen to us. I can corner them at a party or at a barbecue, and then because of whatever, they'll politely listen to what I say, but I will never win their heart. And for us to realize this will come as they see we are no danger to them, we love them, we uh, serve them to make life better for them, they know who our king is, they know what kingdom we're a part of, and then they realize this is a person who is safe to listen to, and I will listen to them, and I will give them a position of influence in my life, and that's how you win the heart, that's how you win the will, uh, without which we haven't gained anyone. Now, as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed Jesus. So Jesus, again, on his way now to Jerusalem, he's making his way through the city of Jericho, which is the last major city he will pass through on the way to uh, Jerusalem. There's this great crowd that is following him, not just the multitude, but a great uh, multitude. You can imagine I'd want to be in that multitude. And so as they're making their way here, Jesus in this multitude uh, through Jericho, behold, two men sitting by the road, and uh, they're blind. And so they got to operate off of hearing now. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out saying, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. I mean the emotion of this scene. Now, Every subculture has a, uh, it, has a uh, it has a communication within it. Uh, it moves. If, if we as a church, somebody comes to the front office and says, I need a little bit of help, uh, you know, financially or whatever, and we give them $200 and they head out the door, and within one day, we'll have 20 people at the door coming now and asking for $200. Because there's a subculture. The word gets out. It moves. We're all connected to whatever our subculture might be. Can you imagine, and and it isn't hard to imagine, that every single person in the entire land of Israel, by this point, it's the end of Jesus' ministry, three and a half years, every blind person, every uh, lame person, every demon-possessed person, every person in whatever need that they might have physically, all of them have heard about Jesus. I mean, that word is infiltrated through the entire land. Here they sit in Jericho. The dream of their life is that somehow they will come into contact with Jesus at some time and that he will heal them of their blindness. And then on this day, it's a day like any other day in their life, they hear a commotion and they find out that Jesus is going through their city And they begin to cry out to him as we see once again, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. 
Interesting, they are declaring him to be the Messiah. Those are names for the Messiah. So they may be physically blind, but they are not spiritually blind. They recognize Jesus to be the Messiah, which is something the religious leaders of Jesus' day, for all of their physical sight, were not recognizing at all. And then get this, <laughs> the multitude then warned them that they should be quiet. Shh! <laughs> but they cried out all the more, saying, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. This was, and they couldn't know it, this was their first chance, and this was their last chance to be healed by Jesus. They have no idea that he's heading to Jerusalem and to the cross, and they are not going to let this opportunity get by, and they begin to cry out even uh, louder and louder. They are not going to conform uh, their love for God, their desire to be touched by Jesus, to express themselves to Jesus. They're not going to be conformed by the religious crowd around them. They know who Jesus is. They know what they need from Jesus, and they're going to cry out to him until they receive that, no matter whether anybody else thinks it's kosher or not. And it's very important in your and my Christian life don't accept the standards of the crowd or whatever professing Christianity is at the moment and what they find acceptable or unacceptable. You decide the relationship you want to have with God. You decide how close you want to be to Him. You decide what you want to tell Him about the need in your life and reaching out to Him in faith. Don't let anybody poo-poo you away from that. I was reading a book recently. It's called 102 Minutes, and it's the true story. I mean, just minute by minute of when that first plane hit the first tower of the Twin Towers in New York, all the way to the final collapse of the second of those two buildings and what happened in those towers and all. And when that plane hit the first tower, and I think it was the North Tower, when it hit that North Tower, there were people in the South Tower. These are all windows in this buildings. And, uh, and they, when it hit the North Tower, they were on floors directly across from where that plane came in. The flames exploded out of the building, and the flame was so hot that it singed papers on the desks of people in the other tower. People began to run to the elevators in that south tower to get out of there and vacate it before something else happened. They got down to the lobby, and by the time they got down to the lobby, those that were uh, in, in charge of security at that moment, they had been given orders. They informed everyone that the situation was secure, everyone could safely return to their offices. And thousands of people 
re-entered into those elevators and went back up into their offices and found themselves above where the plane came in and then hit that building just minutes later. There was one woman who got down to the bottom floor, and she has seen a plane just hit the other tower. She goes down to the lobby, and they're telling her, everything is okay, you can return to the office. She said to herself, everything is okay, my foot, nothing is under control about this situation, and she left that building and saved her life. Go with your gut. Go with your gut in your relationship with the Lord. You do what you know you need from God. You go with the relationship that you know that you want and need with God. Don't accept anybody else's or the lukewarm vibe of anybody else or even the body of Christ as a whole. You need something from God, do what these guys did. Nobody could deter them. And so Jesus stood still as they're crying out. I love it. I just want a picture of this so much. Here they are, they're crying out, there's this multitude, and then Jesus suddenly just stops. And then he called them, and then he said to them, and this is fascinating, what do you want me to do for you? Um, we'd like a Hershey bar. No, he knows what they need. But he's going to have them say it, going to have them say it for themselves and for the crowd so that when he does it, they'll know he did it. And they said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. And so Jesus had compassion and then touched their eyes, and immediately immediately their eyes received sight, and then now they used this new quality of life and condition to begin now to follow after him. Chapter 21. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to uh, Bethphage at the uh, Mount of Olives, and then Jesus sent uh, two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Uh, Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. So Jesus apparently had, something had been prearranged here now, two servants are going that perhaps the owner of the, uh, the colt and the donkey weren't aware of who they were. The Lord has need of them. This is the arrangement. And so they released the, the two animals uh, to them. And all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was uh, spoken by the prophet saying, tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and lying, uh, and sitting uh, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so the disciples went, and they did as Jesus had commanded them. They brought the donkey to him, and then uh, and uh, and the colt. 
And then they laid their clothes on them, and they set Jesus on them. And then a very great multitude, as Jesus begins to go forth uh, on the donkey, a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others began to uh, cut down branches from the trees. And this is the Sunday prior to Jesus' crucifixion. This is his, known as his triumphal entry. It, it, it's known as Palm Sunday today probably because the branches that they did for the most part cut down to put on the road before him in honor of him were palm branches. And so they cut down branches from the trees, spread them on the road, and then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the Son of God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, Who is this? And so the multitude said, This is Jesus, uh, the prophet from uh, Nazareth of Galilee. Now let me say one thing before we get into the main uh, gist of what's happening here. A lot of people look, and here is Jesus' triumphal entry in the city of Jerusalem, this tremendous crowd that comes, worships, and, and the entire scene is one of fulfilled prophecy, as we'll see in just a moment. And, and so here they are clearly declaring Jesus to be the Messiah. They are offering him worship, offering him praise. And then so often uh, we can look at it or be told that isn't it a pity that just within the next week that this same crowd will be uh, outside of the praetorium and uh, calling out to Pilate, crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. I would contend that these are two entirely different crowds. Uh, the common people loved Jesus. And on that morning of his crucifixion, the Jewish religious leaders began what they began very early in the morning, long before people were awake, long before the city of Jerusalem had uh, woke up, and long before this crowd was awake, or certainly down in the area of the Antonia Fortress. That crowd was a crowd that the Jewish religious leaders had put together to accomplish what they wanted to accomplish, a crowd that could be easily manipulated by them. They're two entirely different crowds. The common people loved Jesus. What you have here, and, and the beauty of it here in Jesus' triumphal entry, is that Jesus, in his triumphal entry, he fulfills three major Old Testament prophecies concerning uh, the coming of the Messiah. There in chapter, uh, in verse 5, as we read, uh, it is a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, where Zechariah prophesied that Jesus would be revealed to Israel as her king, and he would be uh, revealed by riding into Jerusalem lowly on a donkey, just as Jesus did. Didn't come in the way that kings normally come in, on a great stallion or steed, you know, snorting and all of that, a power kind of, uh, of thing. He would come in on a donkey, lowly. Now, at his second coming, it's a very different story, isn't he? He comes on a white horse. <laughs> I love Daryl Mansfield. He sings a song, and he just punctuates in this song that he's singing. It's, it's actually, it's all along the watchtower. But um, uh, sorry about that if it stumbles any of you. But he, he takes it. I think Dylan wrote the song, actually. 
and spiritual in nature. But uh, Daryl sings this song, and when he's singing it, man, he's talking about Jesus' second coming. He adds his own thing, and he starts saying, uh, white horse, white horse. It's so powerful. And though Jesus will come in his second coming with that kind of power and authority. His first coming, he came as a suffering Savior. Second coming as a conquering king. But this is just as Zechariah had said. In verse 9, uh, here the, the, uh, the multitudes correctly recognize Jesus as the fulfillment of that great messianic psalm in the Old Testament, Psalm 118, and how that when the Messiah came, he would be recognized, and the praise that would be given to him is Hosanna, uh, Hosanna, and the word Hosanna means praise, uh, save now, save now, establish your kingdom, and so forth. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, uh, Psalm 118 uh, declares, we have blessed you from the house of the Lord. And so Jesus fulfilled that particular prophecy. Additionally, and very, very significantly, Jesus made his triumph triumphal entry on the exact day that Daniel the prophet prophesied that Messiah would uh, make his triumphal entry and be revealed to the nation of Israel officially. Remember, in Jesus' public ministry, how over and over again, after he would perform a miracle or raise somebody from the dead, the people would be so excited, they would recognize him as the Messiah, and they would want to by force make him king. And repeatedly we're told in the gospel accounts that Jesus would not allow it to happen. And the reason was given. And the reason that is repeatedly given is, my day has not yet come. My day has not yet come. My day has not yet come. There was a specific day that Daniel had prophesied in Daniel chapter 9 of when the Messiah would make his revelation of himself to the city of Jerusalem. And on the sat Sunday before Jesus' crucifixion, that day prophesied by Daniel, I won't get into all of the numbers of all, all of it. You can go online and and uh, stream the study related to Daniel 9, but Jesus may, revealed himself as the Messiah officially in fulfillment of Daniel chapter 9 at his triumphal entry. Interestingly, in the prophecy of Daniel, that Dan, the book of Daniel prophesies the exact day of both uh, Jesus's triumphal entry, his revelation as the Messiah to the nation of Israel, and at his first coming, concerning his first coming, and it prophesies the very day of Jesus' second coming. But we don't know the day of his second coming because it's numbered a certain number of days, 1,360 days from the abomination that causes desolation. So hopefully you won't be here when that happens, but if you were here at the midpoint of the tribulation period, you could mark a calendar 1,360 days, and then that is the day that Jesus is going to return at his second coming. Phenomenal prophecies as it relates to uh, the prophet Daniel. And as surely as Daniel's prophecy concerning Messiah in his first coming came to pass, it is just as sure uh, that Jesus will uh, be reintroduced into human history at his second coming on the exact day that Daniel prophesies, 1,360 days 
following uh, the abomination that causes desolation. In other words, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, not because I say He is or anybody says that He is, but because God says He is through His prophetic Word. He is Messiah according to the Scriptures. And then Jesus uh, went into the temple of God, and this is the second time He's going to cleanse the temple, and this is, again, uh, now uh, the cross is approaching. It's late in His life. He began His public ministry three and a half years earlier by cleansing the temple at that time, but nothing has improved there, so He in Jerusalem, he then moves and, and uh, in, in a righteous anger, cleanses it once again. He went into the temple of God. He drove out all of those. And you look at the strength of the word. He drove them out. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child. Got another side to him too. And not all anger is carnal. There's such a thing as righteous anger. Most of my anger is carnal. I get angry because you've messed with me. Most, uh, very rarely is that righteous anger on my part, though it usually takes the Holy Spirit 48 hours to convince me of it. That was righteous anger that I yelled out the window to that person that was driving, incompetent idiot. Somebody's got to set them straight, right? I don't really do that, by the way. They do frustrate me, though. And it might even be some of you. I don't know. I share the road with you. But most of my indignation or anger is unrighteous. Righteous anger is when I become angry on behalf of someone else because of how they're being mistreated or on the part of Jesus here where someone who claims to represent God is completely misrepresenting God. And God the Father happens to be Jesus' Father. And so this is a righteous anger. He is deeply upset with how heaven is being represented through the religious system of the Jews at that time, how his Father is being represented, how the law and the prophets are being represented. So he drove out all of those who bought and sold in the temple, and he not only did that, but he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. There was a commercial on TV a while back where I think somebody, some guy is coming back to his, an apartment or something, and and uh, his wife or something is on the second story or whatever, and uh, she is throwing all of his furniture out the window down onto the driveway where he is. Jesus is, is just tossing all of it, all of these furnishings out of the way. And he doesn't, you know, throw the doves. He just overturns the table of the money changers and then the seats of those who sold doves. He is very, very upset. And here's the deal that's going on. According to the law of Moses, three times a year Jewish males were required at the feast of uh, Passover, at the, at the feast of Pentecost, and at the feast of uh, of the tabernacles, they were required to come to Jerusalem, offer an animal sacrifice to the Lord, and to bring a half shekel and give it at the temple. 
Well, most of these people are traveling from great distances. And so to bring an animal, and they may not even have an animal that was without spot and blemish, and that was a requirement. And so they said, all right, rather than bring a lamb or bring a dove from a great distance, uh, we'll just go there and we'll buy one. And what probably began as a convenience where people were supplying animals like this, they could buy it at a fair price, and then that animal would be offered. And then, of course, in the temple, they would not receive Roman money. That was Gentile money. You would have to exchange that Roman money into shekels in order to offer a Jewish shekel. And so they provided this probably as a service. And then over time, they began to realize, you can make money off of this. And so pretty soon they start to charge an exorbitant fee to exchange the money into shekels. They begin to um, charge an exorbitant fee for the animals. And here are the animals or the doves or whatever that are kind of uh, have the seal of approval by the religious leaders. They've got kind of some kind of a sticker on them or some kind of something around their leg and so forth. And here is a person who comes from 200 miles away with their lamb, and if you're not buying it at the temple, that priest is going to look at that and find some fault in it and say, that's not acceptable. You have to buy one of these at five times the price. Now, that could get to you. That could get to you. That could ruin your whole Passover. That could ruin your whole Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Tabernacles. I came to the temple to worship God and to express my love for Him, and these thieves did this to me here, and they were doing this to everyone and ruining the worship of God's people toward the Lord, and worse, they were doing it while claiming to represent the Lord. How awful that would be. And what's worse still is the mention of the doves here, because the doves were the sacrifice that God allowed for the poor, for those that couldn't afford a lamb, If they were poor enough and could only afford a dove, God said, I will receive that dove from you. And they are even gouging at five times the rate, even the poor. And all of this made Jesus very, very upset. And so he cleanses the temple once again, and he said to them, it is written while he's doing this, my house, talking about the temple, all of this is going on in on the courtyard of the temple. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And it is a very, very sad thing, but it is very, very um, true even to this day. The number of thieves who are attracted to the things of God in order to make an easy buck. They look at it. They know how to manipulate people. They know how to work the system, and they know how to get rich off of people. Not everything on Christian television is like this, but an awful lot of it is. And when I see it, I think to myself, I hope you repent. I don't know what is going to happen to you. 
because you have an entire scam that I'm listening to you to put out, and you are aiming at the poorest of the poor in our nation to send the $100 from their Social Security check. And if you don't think that God isn't watching this, serious business. It's serious business to claim to represent God and then use that to separate people from their money. People should give to God, but that should be something just as God commanded that they would do in the Old Testament, but it should be something where it leaves a good taste in their mouth. They weren't being ripped off. And when Jesus does this, then the blind, the lame, they then came to him in the temple. Finally, there's room for them. That's what the court of the Gentiles was uh, for, for them to come in and draw close to God. And then he healed them there. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, <laughs> some of these wonderful things that he did, all of these healings that are going on right and left at that moment, and then the children, they just spontaneously, nobody put a children's choir together, they just begin to cry out spontaneously in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And they started to cry out this praise to Jesus, and the religious leaders were indignant. And they said to Jesus, do you hear what these people are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you, speaking of God, have perfected praise? And Jesus defended their worship, and he defended the fact that their worship of him as the Messiah was well-placed and properly placed. And then he left them and went out uh, of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. So why make a big deal of all of this? I don't want anybody in this room who is not a Christian to ever, ever be stumbled or to be driven away from Christianity by how he is re represented by spiritual thieves today who are using his name to enrich themselves. And there's a lot of people who are turned off to Christianity or churches or whatever. All they're after is my money. And a lot of that is true, but what you need to understand is that Jesus is even more upset with it than you are. And don't you miss heaven over that. It's no reason to miss heaven. They are misrepresenting the Lord, but they, have no, they are not there to supply you with an excuse to reject God or to assume that that is what God is like and that what is what his kingdom is like. It upset Jesus, and he cleansed the temple twice in order to make this point so people would understand where he stands on this and that no one would be stumbled by what he surely knew would go on in his name even into this hour. Don't ever miss heaven because of the misrepresentation of any of us of God, no matter what the issue might be, spiritual thievery or whatever it might be, you must make your decision concerning you, what you do with Christ, not on the basis of how well we represent him or don't represent him, but on the basis of his life and his ministry 
And in Jesus, you will never find a fault and you will never find a reason for rejecting him. Let's stand together tonight and we'll pray. The worship team come forward. That would be great. Thank you, Jesus, for this record of your life and ministry that we've been able to look at tonight and to realize everything that we've seen here. You did that. You said that. You went into those cities. You talked personally to those two blind men. You took those misguided disciples, two of them filled with selfish ambition and the others now filled with anger. And you walked them through all of that and worked it together for good in teaching them about the difference between authority and influence and power. And we thank you that by your Holy Spirit you recorded it in your book so that we could absorb it into our lives and into our spirit tonight. And we thank you for that. And Jesus, we thank you tonight that you were willing to endure all of the betrayal all of the condemnation, the scourging, the blasphemies, the nails, the crown of thorns, everything that was associated with the cross of Calvary and willing to do that for us. We bless you tonight. We bless you right now from our hearts, Lord. We bless you for our salvation. We bless you for being our Savior. We bless you for the price that you were willing to pay. And we bless you and we thank you that it wasn't the end of the story, but that you rose again from the dead on the third day and that you have also supplied us with a victory over death. Thank you for that victory. Thank you for be, being as generous as you have been to us and what you have provided to us at tremendous expense to yourself. We bless you as we leave this place tonight, Jesus. And we bless you in your name. Amen.